This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. I'm going to forewarn everybody that this is, there are going to be some things over here that we're going to talk about that are going to be a little bit, um, a little bit uh, strange, but it'll go through. We'll try to answer up everything. We're mainly going to concentrate on something called the Ksav Sofer. The Ksav Sofer was the son of the Ksav Sofer. He wrote a bunch of things over here, and it goes like this. We know that Esther was married to Mordechai. We know that Esther was married to her uncle, to Mordechai itself. That's from the Gemara, that Ve'itam, he had a bias, and the bias really is a bas. That bas turns into bias in the, into the Megillah itself. Why would he have done this? Why would he have allowed? It's the strangest thing in the world, that he would allow his niece, who's his wife, to marry Achashverosh, to be together with Achashverosh, and then, according to the Gemara, the Gemara says that every single night, Esther would be metabol herself, she would go to the mikvah, and then afterward, be together with Mordechai. What was she thinking? Why in the world would that be okay? And why was he okay with that? Meaning, Mordechai is sitting there and he's saying to himself that this is Motur because I know she's not going to do anything wrong, that she was ma'anes, there was an ones involved, there was something that was beyond her control, and therefore it's going to be Motur. But that's the strangest thing in the world. Why in the world would Mordechai have allowed such a thing to be? Mordechai's a gadol ador, Mordechai's a tzaddik, why would he have allowed this to happen? Now, the Gemara gives two answers as to why Esther was mutter to Mordechai after being together with Achashverosh. The first answer was Karka Olam. Karka Olam means that she was not involved in the Misa, there was nothing involved whatsoever, and therefore was considered an onus completely right. It's the ground of the world, so to speak, as she didn't do anything, and therefore she's mutter to her husband. But that's a strange thing. Mordechai is going to rely on that. He knows that that's what's happening, and therefore he's allowed to be together with him. How is that possible? Meaning to be able to go, yeah. So that's part of the problem as well. She's definitely, I mean, you mean the second time around, meaning when she finally goes in on her own. But until that point, why was Mordechai mutter to her while she was with Achashverosh before that point? If you say that reason, there's another answer given. The other answer given is that whenever you have a king that's involved in a situation, you can assume that it's an onus. You can assume that you were being forced into it because most people would assume they're not going to become the queen, and if they're not going to become the queen, then you don't have to worry about something like this happening. You're not, you're not, you're always being forced as opposed to being a willing participant. But even so, Esther knew she was the queen. She wasn't, how could she not assume that she was, how could Mordecai not assume that she was a willing participant? There's something strange here, and Mordecai was relying on a massive hatcher to be able to be together with her after all this was happening. It's another strange reason. I think we have to understand why in the world would Mordechai have told her to put herself into a sakana? She put herself in a crazy amount of danger here. What was the danger? Achashverosh wanted to know what nation she was from. And she refused to tell. You don't tell a king something, the king's going to kill you. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. You can't say no to the king. This is the Persian king. He's asking you where you're from and what nation you're from. And Mordecai said, do not tell him that you're Jewish. Let me ask you just all together. What difference does it make if she, would, if she was Jewish? If he loved her that much, if he thought she was that beautiful, then what difference did it make to Achashverosh if she was Jewish or not? Did, did Mordecai know something that nobody else knows that Achashverosh would have killed her if, she, if he would have known she was Jewish? What in the world was he saying to her? And it really put her in danger every single time when Achashverosh asked, what nation are you from? And he even lowered taxes in order to make sure that he would find out where she's from. Why would Mordecai have done this in the first place? What was, that, what, what was the point of all that? So the answer is, is that this is what made it into an onus. Esther was going into everything thinking, perhaps she's going to survive and maybe she won't. 
Because every time Achashverosh went up to Esther and said, tell me what nation you're from, tell me what nation you're from, she refused to say anything. She refused to do anything. She refused to say anything at all. And for that reason, she made this into a suffolk. At any point, it's possible that she could be killed. And at any point that's possible she could be killed, she might not be the queen tomorrow. At any point, this is considered an ones. Mordechai was mutter to Esther. He was allowed to marry Esther and be together with Esther because he caused a situation where she never thought she was going to survive till the next morning. She was always in a situation where she felt forced. There was something going on the entire time. For that reason, Mordechai mattered it, knowing that she was always like that. The first time that that wasn't true, as I said before, Ms. Einwitz, at the time when he realized that she was on her own. Kashira vadati avadati. When I got lost, I'm gone completely. At this point, it had nothing to do with whether she was Nivellus Baratzon, if she was doing this Baratzon or whatever. It had nothing to do with that. It's that once she goes in and she tells what her nation is, she says, I'm Jewish. From then on, she's not a Suffolk anymore. She knows that Akashverj is picking her as her queen, even though she's Jewish. She knows that everything's going to work out in the way that it was supposed to be, which means she's no longer Mutter Mordechai. Mordechai can't rely on anything. The only thing you have is Karka Olam, and he wouldn't rely on such a thing. What's up? She She didn't lie. She said, I'm not telling. But that's putting her in Sakana. She can't put herself in Sakana. Agreed, but all that was doing, she's following the laws of Mordechai. It's really a question why Mordechai did it. Mordechai right. did it so that she would be baones, so that nothing would happen. Mordechai says, I'm going to kill you, or you, say, or you do this. You have to, halakhically, you have to tell him. You have to tell him. You have to go against Mordechai. Unless Mordechai had a reason to do it, which he did, so that he allowed it to happen. He allowed her to be in this situation. Perhaps Mordechai knew that something special was happening over here. Mordechai did have a plan, as we spoke about last year. The plan was either for the base of Mikdash to be rebuilt or for all the Jews to be saved. There was a plan here, so it could be that. Now, Haman goes up to Achishverosh and says, we want to kill the Jews. Why? So he said the words, Yeshno Amachad. There is one nation out there. And the Gemara Darshan, Yeshno Amachad means Yeshanu Mina Mitzvos. They are stale when it comes to Mitzvos. They don't do Mitzvos properly. They don't do anything properly. Does anybody know the end of that Gemara? After it says Yeshno Amachad, and he says they're stale for Mitzvos. They don't like doing Mitzvos. You know what it says right after that? You know what else the Jews do? They don't eat our food because they only eat kosher. Right? They don't marry into our, our nations because they only marry into themselves. Right? They don't keep any of our laws because they yell at us and they say Shehi Pehi, which means Shabbos Ayom, Pasach Ayom. It's Shabbos today, it's Pesach. We celebrate Pesach, we celebrate Shabbos, so we can't do anything for you. If the king would touch a cup of wine that they had, they would throw away the wine completely. If a fly would go in, they'd take out the fly and they'd drink the rest of the wine. But if the king would touch the wine, they'd throw out the wine. Hold on. Isn't that an unbelievable contradiction? He started off in saying, they don't care about mitzvahs whatsoever, and they're no longer keeping mitzvahs. And then he goes on, Haman says, but they keep this mitzvah and that mitzvah, and they're separating themselves from us. It's a complete contradiction. Are they people that are old and stale for mitzvahs, they don't care about mitzvahs? Or do they do care about mitzvahs? And look, they're doing all these mitzvahs right over here. So there's an obvious answer. Haman realized that he could get him. He could get the Jews and he could get Achashverosh mad at the Jews if he made them look like hypocrites. Why were they made into hypocrites? What was the the hypocritical ideas that were there within the Jews themselves? Well, what did they do in Achashverosh's party? In Achashverosh's party, they ate from the food, they drank from the wine, they hung out with the other nations themselves, they may have been involved in some of the way during that party itself, and they were going around. Haman is claiming something that nails us every single day in our lives. He's getting their hypocrisy. Here's what the Jews are. They claim when it's good for them, let's stay away 
from the non-Jews. We'll stay away from their wine. We'll stay away from their work. We'll stay away from everything they do. We're going to keep our own stuff. We're not going to marry into them. We're going to do our own thing. And they said over and over and over again, we're going to be ourselves. We're going to do our own thing. We're going to keep this to ourselves. They said it over and over and over again so they wouldn't be together with the non-Jews. But when it came to a massive party, they're all in. They're completely all in. I'm not comparing. I'm just, whatever. If we sit there and we say, like, we're just like, oh, no, 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 we would never do that. And yet, in a game seven of the World Series, there are more Jews there than any other nation in the world combined. There's more. We're just, per capita, there's more of them out there. Just like, it's strange, isn't it? It's strange. There's almost like a hypocriticism that we have within ourselves where we're just like, no, 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 we can't do this, we can't do that, we can't do that. But, but, there are certain exceptions. This is what Akashverosh was nailed on. And it's true. We all feel this. There are certain things that we'd say, no, we'd never do that. But this, I think I would be okay with. And that's one of the things that Haman nailed us on. Yeshanam in a mitzvot. They don't like doing mitzvot. They'll do it only if it gets them out of doing the king's work. They'll do it if it makes them look different. They'll do it certain times when they think that they're trying to do X, Y, and Z, but they won't do it other times. That's what it means by Yeshanam and Mitzvot. And this was the issue. I, I mean, think about it. I, I, it just makes sense that if he goes up, if Haman goes up to Akashverosh and says, the Jews, they follow their own laws. Then a king who's in charge of everyone in the world who had no religious affiliation, we see nothing about Akashverosh of being, he believes in this of or anything like that. He could care less about religion. Why wouldn't he say, oh, that's good. That's a great people. They follow their own laws. I'm so proud of them. Even though they're in other lands, they follow their own laws. That should be a great thing. Why would Akashverosh be angry at that? And the answer is, is because it wasn't that they kept mitzvahs. They only kept mitzvahs when they want to keep it. When they don't want to keep it, they don't want to do it. They don't do it, and they just don't, they do their own thing out there. That's the problem. And that's the issue that Haman nailed them on. And it's a problem by us. It's something that we have to think about. Are we hypocritical in what we do? And we are. Everybody's hypocritical in a certain way. What can we work on to make sure that we're not yeshanu mina mitzvos, that we're keeping what we need to keep, and we know what we're supposed to do when it comes to these things? Sam Sofer says, why didn't Mordechai bow to Haman? Mordecai refused to bow to Haman. And it's the strangest thing in the world. Everybody else is bowing to Haman. Nobody knew that he had a little idol around his neck. And even that's really, really strange. Even if he did have an idol around his neck, why was that considered a bodhisattva? Is that really an issue when you bow down to somebody who the king says you have to bow down to? No one is considering him a bodhisattva. Nobody thinks that he's got an idol around his neck. Why wouldn't you be able to bow down to some guy who's standing out there with a little anything, with anything around his neck? Why is this a problem? What's the issue with bowing down to him? He was asleep. Oh, Mordecai and yeah. Haman. Okay, granted, that's true, but Mordecai clearly wasn't treating him as a slave because Haman was already the grand vizier and the prime minister of, of, of Haman, of, of Akashverosh. I understand, I understand, but still, nonetheless, he wasn't treating him that way. He didn't tell anybody this. So like, for him to not bow down and to get Haman mad at him is a really strange thing. Why would he do that if it's... And seriously, he is, as you said before. He put himself in Sakana. He's putting himself in danger for seemingly no reason. Is there a reason why Mordecai refused to bow down other than it's my slave. I'm not going to. That sounds, I don't mean to say it, but petty on Mordecai's part. It's petty. It's just like, I don't want to bow down. So I'm not going to bow down. And putting his whole nation in danger because he refuses to bow down. Why would he do it? So let's go a little bit backward. Okay. Akashverosh, and this, we're going to go with the way that the Gemara says it. Although in, if we go through the Persian Kings, it doesn't really go exactly this way, but Akashverosh was Artaxerxes the second. His father was Koresh. He was the first Persian King. Koresh the first, 
right? He's also known as Artachshasta. Korish the first was preceded by Daryavish the first, Darius the first, who was actually a Median king, not a Persian king. So it was Daryavish the first, then Korish, and then Achashverosh. Daryavish took over after Belshazzar was killed. Belshazzar was king for three years, right? And he was the son. I remember Belshazzar's daughter is Vashti. She's the one that married Achashverosh. Belshazzar's father is Evo Merodach. You can remember that easily because his name is Evo Murdoch. So that's a, that's a very easy way of remembering it. So Evo Merodach was king for 23 years, and Evo Merodach's father was Nebuchadnezzar, who was king for 45 years. You have Nebuchadnezzar for 45 years. He's the one that destroyed the base of Mikdash, then Evo Merodach, then Belshazzar. The kingdom of Babylonia stopped. You have Daryavish the first, then Koresh the first, then Akashverosh, and then Daryavish the second, who ended up building the second base of Mikdash, or allowed them to go back with Ezra in order to build the entire base of Mikdash. During the times of Nebuchadnezzar, there were tremendous people living. And even in the times of Purim, we forget this. Because you think like Mordecai is the only guy around. There's other Gedolim around there. He might have been the only guy in Shushan. That's possible. But Hananiah, Mishol, Azariah, Chagai, Zechariah, Malachi. Daniel was still alive. He was Hasach. He's mentioned in the Megillah itself. You still have uh, Zerubbabel, if he's not the same person. Yoshua Kohen Gadol, who's a tremendous person. You have Ezra, Hasopher, Nehemiah, who are all alive. Everybody's alive. They're all around somewhere during this story itself. Hanani Mishol Vazariah were standing there when Achashverosh put up a statue of himself and told everyone to bow down to it. Everyone was supposed to bow down to it. He had everybody line up and they all bowed down to it. Technically, there was nothing wrong with that. It's a statue. It's not about Azara. Nobody considered it idol worship. But he said everybody has to bow down to it. There was a cash on this. So Hanani Mishol Vazariah refused to go. Where was Mordechai? Did Mordechai bow down? Because Hanani Mishol Vazariah were the only people who didn't bow down to the idol. Did Mordechai bow down to the idol? So the Gemara says, no. The Anshe Knesset the great men at that time, ran away. They didn't want to be challenged. They didn't want to die. So therefore, what do they do? They ran away. They went as far away as they could. Included in those people that ran away was Mordecai. And we know Hanani Mishol Vazari refused to run. They went up and they said, we're willing to die for our beliefs. And they got up, they went in front of Nebuchadnezzar and they said, we're not bowing down. You want to throw us in a fire? Throw us in a fire. We're not bowing down. So Hanani Mishol Vazariah were thrown into the fire, and we know what happened. They made a massive Kiddush Hashem. They were walking around in the fire. Hanani Mishol Vazariah came out. Nebuchadnezzar looked at them and said, you guys are unbelievable. And he said, you are the new, you know, the new, I, I guess you could say, the chief advisors to the king. And they were right below Nebuchadnezzar until they moved to Eretz Yisrael at the end of their lives. That's what happened to Hanani Mishol Vazariah. For the rest of Mordecai's life, Mordecai was angry. Why in the world didn't I do that? He sat there and he said, I ran away. I shouldn't have run away. I should have made sure that I didn't bow down. I should have been with Hanani Mishol Vazari. I knew they weren't bowing down. I shouldn't have bowed down. And he was so upset, so upset. They said, why in the world, said Mordecai, why didn't I do it? So he made a proclamation. He didn't, made a nether. He promised. He said, the next time something like this happens, I will not bow down. Lo yichra velo yishtachaveh is the wording of the Pasuk. Lo yichra velo yishtachaveh means he would not bend he would not bow. In the future, he made a proclamation by Nebuchadnezzar after he saw what happened with Hanani Mishol Vazariah. He said, I am doing it next. Hanani Mishol Vazariah did it this time. I'm doing it next. The next time a situation comes up where everybody's bowing down to something, I'm going to make sure that I don't bow down. And he waited. Years passed. Nebuchadnezzar died. Evo Merodach died. Belshazzar died. Daryavish I died. Koresh I died. And comes Achashverosh and makes a situation with Haman, where Haman is telling everybody, it's time to bow down to me. And Mordecai finally said, it's time. It's time. I'm ready. I've been waiting for this for years. 
I've waited for the years. And therefore, it's because he said, I won't bow down, that he didn't bow down. He refused to bow down. It was Midas Chasidus. It was his own netter. It was his own thing that he did. He wanted to be Moser Nefesh over here. So he did this because of what he proclaimed before. He did not think he was going to live through it. He thought he was actually going to die. And he was willing to do it because he missed out on the opportunity the first time. Put himself in this danger on pers- purpose because of what happened before. And what's up, Shalom? The answer is yes, because that's the whole point of this netter at this point. Don't bow down. You're going to put yourself in a sakana. He didn't know that. That he didn't know. Had he known that the Jews were going to be, you know, thrown into what he figured he would die. Haman would take him and kill him. That's what he figured, but he didn't figure that. Second question? Even better. Okay, I just answered that. That works so well. What's up? This is from the Chassam, uh, this is from the Chassam Sofer. The Chassam Sofer says this. I'm adding on a little bit, but it's basically the Chassam Sofer. But it makes so much sense that he made that proclamation. And he said, "I'm not going to do it no matter what." This, by the way, lasts for us nowadays. There are people who are willing to be Moser Nefesh for this reason because Mordechai Lo Yichra he wouldn't bow down, he wouldn't bend. From now on, whenever a Jew sits there and he has a situation where he could bow down to an idol, you're willing to be Moser Nefesh Lo Yichra You won't bend, you won't bow because Mordechai didn't bow. He put it into our spiritual DNA that this wouldn't happen for us. Yeah. It's a real kasha on what this is considered when it's a public idea of bowing down to a statue. Not exactly a, an idol, but a statue. What consideration is that when it's a public display of bowing down? So that's in the Gemara. If anybody's doing Dafyomi, it's like right now. It's on Daf Mem Aleph, Mem Beis, Mem Gimel, and Avodah Zara, right over there. But those ideas are right there in the Gemara. What happens in the situation? So suffice it to say, it's not the easiest thing in the world over here. Okay, there is a line in the Megillah that says, Once Haman realizes that things are going badly, Mordecai is doing so well, and he just led Mordecai through the streets. He just lost his daughter. His daughter just jumped off the rooftop. He had garbage thrown in his head by his daughter. He comes home to Zeresh, hoping, hoping for like a good word or something, and goes back to her and says, all right, Zeresh, honey, it's been a really, really hard day. You know, tell me that everything's going to be okay. Just tell me things are going to go well. And Zeresh, like a good wife, says to him, in Mizera Yehudin, you never told me he was a Jew and from Shevet Yehuda. If he's from Shevet Yehuda, Mordechai, that you began to fall down in front of him, well, you're not going to be able to defeat him. That's it. It's all over. Like, I'm so sorry, but yeah, it's pretty much done. Like, you just died, and it's going to be really, really bad. There's not much you're going to be able to do over here. So Haman's looking at his wife, and it's like, you couldn't have told me this beforehand? You couldn't have told me this beforehand? It's a strange, strange thing. But the way that Zeresh is saying it is, Zeresh was a astronomer, astrologer. I don't know what she was exactly, but she knew things. She was the one who convinced Haman to make the gallows in the first place. She was supposed to be this very, very bright woman who knew all these crazy things. And therefore, she looked over at Haman and she said, I'm looking up at the stars right now and you're dead. There's nothing you're going to be able to do. Everything we thought beforehand that we thought we were going to be able to do is now gone. It's not going to be there. The line is almost, once the mazel starts going up, Mordecai will not be taken down. There's no way to take him down. Now, why is that? What's the idea behind Mordecai not being able to be taken down? There is a crazy machlokas between Yehuda and Yosef. And it appears in Parshas Vayigash. And you see it clearly that Yosef grabs Binyamin and Yehuda is fighting him for him. Vayigash, they love Yehuda, is that he appears, he approaches Yosef at Tzadik and he says, I'm taking the child back. I'm taking Binyamin back. And there's a massive fight. 
Behind the scenes of this fight, there is a medrash. And the medrash says that the Malachim saw what was going on between Yehuda and Yosef, and they said, does anybody want to watch a lion fighting an axe? Does anybody want to watch this? Now, the answer is almost always yes. You can just look at YouTube, and you can for sure see this. And everybody wants to watch a lion fighting a bull. 100% everybody wants to see that. But he said, does anybody want to watch? We've got a lion, we've got a bull, we've got Yehuda, and we've got Yosef. Does anybody want to watch these two fight against each other? And the Malachim all came down to go watch. What's Pshat? What are the Malachim watching? What's the fight between Yosef and Yehuda? Here's the deal. Yosef is the type of guy who's all the way down and then all the way up. There's no, like, in between. This guy is the top of the brothers, and then he's thrown in a pit. He's immediately sold as a slave, right? And then he becomes the greatest person in the household, right? And then he's thrown into jail. And then out of jail, where does he become? The second in command to Paro, a king. Yosef is not a builder-upper. He's a guy who jumps levels. And if you do something bad, you immediately go down. There's no passing go, no collecting $200. It's just you're up or you're down. You're up or you're down. Yosef Atzadik's life is extremes, one extreme to the other. And you can see it in every single one of his kids. Yeruvim ben Nevat, the concept of what Yeruvim ben Nevat stood for, Yeruvim ben Nevat is, I'm the king of Israel. I immediately start worshiping idols with Eglay Azov. There's no in-between. There's nothing where it's like, Yosef can maybe do something. Yosef is all about, I am the, in charge, or I'm nothing, or I'm absolutely nothing. Yehuda, Yehuda builds himself up slowly. Yehuda is the guy that little by little is able to bring himself back. He does sin with Tamar. And he does tshuva for what he did with Tamar and brings himself back. Yehuda realizes what he did with Yosef. And he went into Gullus realizing that he had done something wrong. There were things that Yehuda knew he did wrong. And little by little, he's able to build himself back. We have Yosef's style and his way of life. And we have Yehuda's style and his way of life. And you can go in either direction. Which one do you choose? Our world, I think everybody understands, is Yehuda's world. Yehuda won the fight. Yehuda got Benyamin. Benyamin stands for Shaul HaMelech. And Shaul HaMelech led into David HaMelech's kingdom. There is a Malchus Yosef. There is a Mashiach Ben Yosef. But it leads into the Mashiach Ben David. It culminates in a final idea of where Yehuda is in charge. Because Yehuda is slowly but surely building himself up. When they saw, I guess you could say, Mordechai's rise, the assumption that Haman made and Zeresh and everybody else was that he was from Yosef that this person came out of nowhere. He was not someone well-known. We don't see him throughout anywhere in Daniel. He doesn't appear anywhere in Daniel. You see Hananiah, you see Mishol, you see Azar, you see other people that are building themselves up, all from Shevet Yehuda. But Mordechai is not mentioned. All of a sudden, Mordechai becomes this person who's like second in command to the king. I should say third in command after Haman. And they couldn't understand where he came from, this meteoric rise where he came out of nowhere. And they said, he's Yosef. If he's Yosef, all you have to do is knock him down a little bit. And once he's down, he's down. He's immediately out. He'd have to build himself all the way up, and there's no way for him to do that. Once he's down, he's down. You don't have to worry about anything. Only after they realize that Yehuda is, it, he's, that Mordechai is from Yehuda, and he has been slowly but surely building himself up behind the scenes without them knowing about it, without Haman ever realizing how he built himself up little by little by little. If he's from Yehuda, this guy Mordechai, if he comes from there, then there's nothing to do. Once you fall down in front of him, you're never going to be able to come back up. He's got that idea of where he's building himself up slowly, and he did, and Mordecai did it, there's nothing you're going to be able to do. And that's the concept, the idea at least, of what it refers to when we say that he did it. His, it's crazy. But Mordecai slowly but slowly built himself up. Now, he became the, the, the Grand Vizier of, Paro, of uh, Achashverosh, right? Can't get much better than that. But he does become greater than that. He does become greater. 
How does Mordechai become greater than the prime minister of, of Ahasuerus? It's more than that. King's uncle. Not even more. More than that even. According to Tosvos, Mordechai is the father of Daryavesh II. It's Mordechai and Esther's kid, not Esther and Ahasuerus' kid. But when we started off the shear, she was going back to Mordechai. The child that she had was not Ahasuerus' kid. It was Mordechai's kid. Daryavesh II was fully Jewish. It's oh. Esther and Ahasuerus' kid? No, they thought it was Ahasuerus. It was really Mordechai's. Well, it's about I'm sorry? Right. There's a Medrash Rabbah, but that wouldn't have been this kid. Because this is already 12 years into the kingdom. She had given birth. I'm sorry? No, no, no. But before, six years, she ended up becoming queen six years into it. If Daryavish II is the child king, he became king at the age of eight. Right? If this is the kid, it was Mordechai's kid who was born when Esther was six years into the kingdom, when Ahasuerus first married her, and Mordechai was involved. It's a crazy line. Tosa says it. It's not for sure. There is, in our history, if we go through the Persian history, there is no child king. Daryavish II was an older kid. It would have been Vashi's kid. It would have been Vashi and Ahasuerus' kid, not Esther's kid at all. But if it is Esther's kid, and it's Mordechai's, you see Mordechai building up, building up, building up, until finally his kid is the king. His child is the king itself. He became the king of Persia. You don't get much higher than that. I don't know if there is. I mean, obviously, king of Klal Yisrael. But there's unbelievable idea of what it's supposed to be. I thought he was from Binyamin. Binyamin and Yehuda. We all know that, right? Binyamin from his father and Yehuda from his mother. And that's why he kept saying, Zeri Yehudin. Well, I thought it was Yehuda because it was a general thought for anyone who was so out with Yehuda. The bottom of the Gemara, right, says that he was a Yehudi because he wouldn't bow down to idols because he ran away from Nebuchadnezzar or because his mother was from Sheva Yehuda. So he ended up having something from Yehuda, so he had some power within him that was allowing him to be able to become this great, so he was able to go through. Esther listened to Mordecai, even though it made no sense. And we understand that. Mordecai told her things that didn't make any sense to her at all. And that was a tikkun for what they did for Bnei Yisrael. We have one minute. You know what? It's 10.01, so let's just end with this right now. I'm going to skip that one for right now. Why didn't Haman tell Ahasuerus? Haman should have gone to Ahasuerus immediately and said, Mordecai's not bowing down to me. Go kill him. So why wouldn't he be killed immediately? And why wouldn't Haman do that? So this is a Persian law that the Minchas Yehuda, Rabbi Yudah Fataya, who lived in Iraq, says still exists in Iraq today. And today means 1930. He died around the 1930s. Rabbi Yudah Fataya was one of the top Talmidim of the Ben Ishchai. So he said this law still exists today. If somebody goes in and argues, makes fun of, or does something bad to a governor, to a, 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 a congressman, to somebody who's up there in the government, here's the law. The law is the person that made fun of that person, the person that made fun of the very high up person, that person is killed. But the governor or the councilman or whoever's out there, that person is taken down from his position. Had Haman gone to Ahasuerosh to get Mordechai killed for not bowing down to him, for embarrassing him publicly, Mordechai would have been killed. But Haman would have been taken down from his position. Says Minchas Yehuda, it's simple why Mordechai could not be killed on his own, why Haman couldn't go against Mordechai himself. If he would have done so, he would have lost his position. 
he wasn't willing to lose his position in order to make sure he went. So instead, he found a whole reason to get all of the Jews, so it wouldn't just be Mordechai, it would be all of them to be able to nail them completely and everybody would be gone. It's like a, such a simple idea. So we have five ideas we mentioned today. Number one, the Ksav Sofer, why he was willing, why Mordechai was willing to be married to Esther when she was together with Ahasuerus. What was the point of doing such a thing? Yeshnoamachad, the hypocrisy that Haman saw within the Jews and what, she saw, what he saw and how he was mentioning it. They do this, but they don't do this. They do this, but they don't do that. Then we said, why wouldn't Mordechai bow? It was lo yichrab, lo he refused to do it because of what he promised all the way back in the day. We said, Zerah Yehudim, that Yehuda versus Yosef, there's an idea that Mordechai stood for of building himself up slowly. And finally, Haman could not have told Achashverosh because of the old law, there's no way that he would have done this because he would have lost his position altogether. Freyla confirm everybody. We have just been Mekayim, according to the Ksam Sofer, says you learn in between the Megillah readings, you get a Chelek and Olam Haba automatically. So everybody here, you automatically have a chilek in Omaha. We're probably going to be together in one big palace. That'll be awesome, right? One place, but we'll try to get, we'll try to build up from now on.